Welcome to Gathering Gold, a podcast for highly sensitive souls. I'm Cheryl Paul, a counselor trained in the Jungian depth psychological tradition. And I'm Victoria Russell, Cheryl's niece and co-host. This podcast explores some of the themes highlighted in my book, The Wisdom of Anxiety, and my Conscious Transitions blog. Join us as we dive into the realms of our inner worlds to ask deep questions, grow more self-trust and self-love, and embrace sensitivity, creativity, and the rhythms of the natural world. If you would like to connect with me, Victoria, and others in the Gathering Gold listener community and support the podcast to help us continue our work, please consider joining our Patreon at patreon.com slash gatheringgold. To learn more about Cheryl's course offerings, including courses to support you in breaking free from anxiety in all forms, learning to trust yourself, and becoming more comfortable with uncertainty, please visit Cheryl's website, conscious-transitions.com. You can also find us on Instagram, Cheryl is at Wisdom of Anxiety, and I am at Perennials Podcast. Thank you for listening. We are going to talk today about purity and perfection. And I wanted to start with a story about how this character of perfection, purity, which is very linked to shame, showed up for me. In recent years, I don't encounter this part of me very frequently. It was certainly a regular guest at my dinner table of Psyche in my 20s, well, in my younger years, teens, 20s, starting to taper off in 30s, 40s, getting very, very quiet. So it's always somewhat surprising and interesting to me when she shows up. And she showed up with quite a vengeance. And it was around getting sick. I got COVID. My husband and I got COVID in Florida a few weeks ago. We are fine, gratefully. And as much as I was physically uncomfortable, luckily it wasn't too bad, but it it wasn't fun. Um, it was actually the mental torture of the perfectionist and the purist that was bringing me down. It was this relentless voice in my head that was saying things like, this is your fault. You should have been able to avoid it. If your microbiome was stronger and healthier, then your immune system would be impervious and you'd be like superwoman and you were, you know, people kept saying like, I haven't gotten it yet. I'm the last person standing. And so this voice was coming in saying, you should have been the last person standing. And I couldn't get underneath it. And so I was lying in bed for days and I would just, this voice would come up. And on maybe day four or five, I texted one of my dear friends who had had COVID a few months ago. And she wrote such a loving response in response to my text. And she wrote things like, perfection doesn't exist. 
and sickness is not a punishment. And she encouraged me to be tender with my body and ask it what it needs. So I got this text at maybe 7 p.m. in the evening and I decided to take a bath and I brought my journal and a candle with me. And I started journaling with basically her prompt, body, what do you need? And she wrote it with such tenderness. It was like the mean perfectionist voice was so harsh, but this question of body, what do you need, was so gentle. And so I wrote for a while on that, my body responding, what it needed. And then I let the mean voice, the perfectionist, that stringent voice, have some airtime, knowing that I would respond from a more loving voice, but I would give it some airtime in my journal. And part of the reason I'm sharing this is because I know a lot of people struggle with journaling and with dialoguing, and I wanted to share an example of what it looks like. This is a very brief exchange of dialogue, but what it can look like and how this process can move some of these characters through us so that we don't stay stuck there. So perfectionist said, and this is from my journal, you messed up. You weren't careful enough. How could you be so stupid and careless? You know better. What were you thinking getting into elevators and standing in line at Disney World without a mask? Why didn't you rent a house instead of staying in a high-rise hotel that had elevators? How could you have overlooked that? You're a better planner than that. What's wrong with you? What happened? How did you fall asleep at the wheel? And I stopped there. And I wrote, wow, it's such a harsh, stringent voice. It's exactly how my throat feels right now. Raw, red, howling, like a fingernail scratching at the back of my throat. And then I called on my grandmother. And I wrote, Grandma, please respond. And I could feel her close by, closer than I usually feel her. I could feel her enveloping me with love. And the first word that came out in my journal was, darling. And I started weeping because she used to call me darling, and I hadn't heard anyone call me that. No one else has ever called me that. Darling. And this is what came through. It's not your fault. You got sick. I'm here. I'm wrapping you in blankets. And, I, and I'm weeping into the tub. Oh, sweetheart, my sweet, darling granddaughter, it's not your fault. You were on vacation for your son's 18th birthday. You wanted to have fun. The whole world is tired of keeping their guard up. You were thinking about your children and planning a fun vacation for them. Cry out these tears of shame. Cry them into the tub, into the ocean into the rivers and seas of our ancient land. Burn the effigy of that harsh, inherited voice. She has no place in you. Put her in the fire of this virus. And I cried and cried and cried. Good tears. 
they weren't, they were connected to the shame, but it was releasing the shame. I wasn't mired in it. I could feel the love and the tenderness. And the phrase that came was, you have no place here. And it was a strong voice that came in, the boundary voice. You have no place here. You have no place here. You are not kind. You can leave now. And for the next several days, one thing I do in the mornings, not every morning, but some mornings is I say good morning and I honor, and sometimes it's a Jewish prayer in all four directions. And it's sort of a protection around the perimeter of our house and our property. And so I called on my imaginal mothers and ancestors and allies and animals in all four directions. And for the next several days, I would say in each direction, you have no place here. And then turn to the east, you have no place here. And turn to the south, you have no place here. And turn to the west, you have no place here. And it dissipated, you know, like all elements of healing. She's not gone. When Victoria and I were talking through this episode yesterday, I could feel her rearing up again a little bit. But just a moment, you know, just a, just a flea, just a mosquito. There she is. That part of me that so wants to be perfect, that wants to be somehow above the human race. And yet, when I wrestle with her and resolve that layer of her, it's such a relief to come down off her mountaintop, out of the glass castle of superiority and join the human race in our suffering. I had COVID and, you know, there's some bonding in that. Most people I know have had it at this point. We can talk about it, commiserate a little, be grateful that we got through it. We're okay. And it's always this immense relief. It's the same relief I felt in my early 20s when I had my first panic attack and it exploded my very, very carefully crafted, polished story that I was somehow above messiness and suffering. And it brought me, boom, crashing down to the human race to earth. And thank God it did. And how much I've been able to guide others and connect with others, just to connect, to relate. So I wanted to share that story at the outset. And there's so many directions that Victoria and I could go in with this episode on perfection and purity but we'll start here. 
You're right, Cheryl. There are so many directions we could go. Mm. But it makes so much sense to me that this would come up for you around illness because to me, purity in particular often feels related to the body. Mm. Perfectionism is very much linked, but it feels more all-encompassing. And purity, purity often comes up around things like our body image, anything related to illness, injury, healing, medicine, like, and nutrition, Mm -hmm. nutrition, what we put in our bodies. Mm -hmm. And of course, sex and sexuality, especially in a religious context and moral moral scrupulosity. Mm. So it makes so much sense to me that that purity piece would come up around something that affected your body and your health. Mm-hmm. And it also makes so much sense that that relational piece of being soothed and moving through it with the help of your grandmother's voice would come up because perfectionism is so often pointing towards a relational need, I think, Mm. Mm. or a relational, either a lack or a perceived lack. Yeah. And is so often soothed by connection. Mm. I just relate to all of that so much. And I also found myself thinking, I just want to mention this. It just popped into my head when you said that you heard your grandmother's voice saying, darling. Hmm. I thought about Thich Nhat Hanh. He had these four mantras of presence that two people can say to each other. I don't know if you've heard this before, but Mm -hmm. I haven't. The mantras are, darling, I am here for you. Hmm. I know you are there and I am happy. Darling, I know you suffer. And darling, I suffer. Please help me. (sighs) (laughs) Really beautiful. And incredible that they start with darling. Mm. Yeah, because that warmth is so important. Yes. And these mantras to be truly present are about acknowledging, I know you suffer and also I suffer. Please help me. If we were perfect, we wouldn't need to ask our loved ones for help. Yes. Um, but we aren't perfect. And the only way to be truly present is to be able to acknowledge that. Mm. So it also makes sense that your friend saying, yes, I suffered and I know you suffer and offering you that help. She was embodying that presence. Yes.
So those were all just things that came into my mind while you were telling such a beautiful story. And I was also just thinking about how I've struggled when we think about purity in particular with OCD around contamination and moral scrupulosity, two different forms of, um, you know, with contamination, it's like the fear of external impurities, I guess, external toxins or poisons or germs or mm-hmm. um, things you might encounter in the kitchen or in the bathroom and Moral scrupulosity is that fear of being impure inside somehow, being bad. Mm. And you and I were talking about this recently, and I was really trying to sit with like what what am I so afraid of around those things? Because it's not just the fear of germs. Like here's an example. This past Christmas, I went home to my parents' house and I was so anxious about COVID because over Christmas, it just really spiked everywhere. Mm -hmm. And I was just not anxious for myself because I had just had it, but anxious for my family. And one night I wanted to make dinner for everybody and I made hamburgers and I'm not really used to making food for that many people. I'm usually making dinner for myself and maybe Martin. Mm -hmm. In general, I struggle with cooking, particularly meat, raw meat, because of my fear of contamination. It's really difficult for me to just be relaxed and just to do it frequently, to be honest, because Mm -hmm. it's hard. But I wanted to make a meal for my family and as everyone started eating, I was realizing like their hamburgers looked pink inside, like they weren't mm. all the way cooked through. I was having an absolute meltdown. Mm-hmm. Like I, you would have thought that I had poisoned my entire family. That's mm. basically how I mm. reacted. And I couldn't sleep that night. Oh. And of course, like I was afraid of getting my family sick. But I think I also was afraid of what it would mean about me as a person. Mm -hmm. Again, that voice that you just talked about, how could you be so stupid? How could you be so careless? Do you not Mm. actually care about your family? Do you Mm. not care if you get them sick? Mm. That was so irresponsible. Why didn't you just slow down and do a better job? What's wrong with you? What's wrong with you? Mm -hmm. And that's where it's so linked to shame. Yeah. It's like working overtime, pretzeling to make sure that every I is dotted and every T is crossed and every hamburger is entirely (laughs) cooked through (laughs) so that people don't find out that I'm bad. So I think there are these two different layers the perfection, the purity, this character of perfection that came in for me that didn't seem linked to shame as much as image 
know, being perceived a certain way. And what is it about that perception that felt so important to that part of me to be lifted above, to be, to be above. And it's this very cold, very cold opposite of darling and warmth and blankets and tea and bathtubs. It's this very cold, cold, separate voice that I think believes if I can get everything right, I will be lifted above the messiness and the pain and the sickness and the illness of being human. And so some kind of escape hatch character, we all have our ways to try to escape the messiness and discomfort and pain of being human. But for most of us, highly sensitive people, it's not typically drugs and alcohol in these more obvious ways. It's these more subtle ways that we try to jump ship out of the human body and the uncertainty of it all. And then for you, linking to that place of, oh no. Yes, I care for my family. I don't want that, them to get sick. And they didn't, by the way, correct? Correct. No one got sick. <laughs> <laughs> Just to follow up on that piece yeah, for anybody yeah. that was worried. <laughs> Everybody was fine. We can tolerate a little bit of pink meat. People actually order it that way Yeah, <laughs> in restaurants. Um, and so, yes, the part that doesn't want to hurt anybody, but also underneath that, the part that worries intensely about being seen as bad. And so purity, I have to do it perfectly, purely purist as the protector against shame. Yeah, because purity is certainty. Pure yes. means 100%. And perfectionists tend to think in very all or nothing terms. Like mm -hmm. I either get all A's 100% and I'm a great student mm -hmm. or I'm a failure, yes. you know, or I'm not worthy. But purity yes. means this is 100%. This is just water. There are no impurities in it. It's been came straight from the most pristine glacial stream, and here mm. it is. <laughs> mm. 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 Yes. And so if it's pure, I don't have to worry because I have certainty. But of course, that doesn't – It's it never, never really feels like that because we don't live in a world of – Perfection or purity yeah. or certainty. Yeah. It's an impossible goal. Unachievable, which is at the root, right, in the deepest sense of working with intrusive thoughts, anxiety, OCD, is coming to some place of accepting and tolerating, at least tolerating, uncertainty. But I think it's more than even just uncertainty. I think it's the, I think it's the messiness. I think it's the pain. Yeah. I think it's the the powerlessness and the brokenheartedness 
right? It's what I, I wrote about in my last blog post about shame and the roots of shame. And so this really early place that arises in children, highly sensitive children, if I can do this perfectly, if I can think this thought perfectly, if I can arrange this perfectly, however it shows up, then maybe I'll feel better somehow on the inside. Or, or I'll have some control. Yeah, and it, it's so interesting because so often I think we want to be perfect because we think that will make us lovable. But that cold superiority that you talked about, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but it feels like a way of kind of keeping people at arm's length. Or Completely. maybe it's not the intention, but you know, that's what it would do, right? Like it's a, yes. it's a form of disconnection as every, every form of perfectionism ends up being. Because I, I remember in middle school, um, sixth grade was probably like one of the loneliest years of my whole life. And mm-hmm. <laughs> I was so quiet, so awkward, so shy, so anxious. I didn't feel like I had any friends, at least in the for the first half of the year. Mm. And I remember this popular girl saying to me once in class, in our language arts class, like, oh, Victoria, you're so perfect. Hmm. And she wasn't saying it like a compliment. And she wasn't talking (laughs) about my clothes or my Mm -hmm. hair or anything, because Lord knows, like, I was not. (laughs) (laughs) It was not that. She was talking about, you know, that I was quiet and got good grades and I was like obedient and I was nice to people. And she was like, oh, you're so perfect. And it was just like, I felt like she had slapped me across the face, mm-hmm. you know, because I knew that meant something. Uh, I don't know. It was like that, that means I'm, I felt very alone and different mm-hmm. in that moment. That's so interesting because. I remember being told that also. And for me, I was like, ha. It, like <laughs> I did it. Yeah. I am perfect. And it <laughs> like <laughs> and it somehow just became even more of my identity of this perfect student, you know, and this perfect life, which it was not at all by any stretch of any imagination. But it just, this identity got woven into me so early. And so that's interesting that I think you had a healthier response because you experienced it as, oh, I'm I'm separate in some way. I think if it, like, I definitely had adults tell me like, oh, Victoria, you're such a little angel. And I'd be like, Oh, okay. Yes. I will keep, yes, Mm -hmm. that's what I want to be. Just a little angel, which by the way, like an angel is not a human. (laughs) So, Mm -hmm. um, and I don't, you know, they didn't mean any, they were just doing their best and trying to reflect something nice. But, um, I think there was an edge like to the way that she said, Uh you know, Uh I could tell it was different from the praise that I would get like from Mm. adults. And so- Uh 
Yeah. That makes sense. You could feel the barb in it. Mm-hmm. It was not a compliment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But by contrast, like the friends that I feel the closest to and the most like I can really be myself with them are the friends that I share imperfections with. Mm-hmm. Just makes me feel so close to someone when I can share that with, them, you know, show that to them and be accepted still. Yes. In my humanity. Yes. If I can't share and if the other person doesn't share some element of being a mess and the messiness and the struggles and the vulnerability, I have a hard time trusting that person. Yeah. Going deep, like we talked about in the deep conversations, right? It doesn't always have to be that, but that there's some recognition of, I can show you my dirty laundry and you can show me yours and we still love each other. And in fact, we probably love each other more because we're willing to say, I really messed up here or had a horrible fight with my husband and talk about it. Or I messed up with my kids. You know. And I think it's actually important for me to say those two specific things out loud on this podcast Mm. because, and I think I've maybe alluded to this before, but I think because of the role I'm in, it's not always um, appropriate for me to share struggles. And so it's easy for people to build up a fantasy of, oh, Cheryl and Dave never fight. They have the perfect marriage. And Cheryl's kids are saints and they would never do what my child just did. And so for the record, (laughs) we fight and my children are not saints and we struggle like everybody else. And I am aware of that perfectionist character in some part of her. And I think I mentioned this since I don't remember which episode it was. um, Kind of liking that, you know? And so I I just want to name... That, but then also dispel it and say, nope, I am totally human. You know, there are really good things in our life and there are things that are huge struggles that come up. Yeah, and it is so powerful to hear that. I'm thinking about someone I know who's just always like, yeah, my husband and I never fight, ever. (laughs) And what? I stopped like sharing things with that person. Yes. Because I'm just like, okay, well, cool. <laughs> like I'm not gonna <laughs> yeah. I'm not gonna talk Great about that you. part of mm-hmm. life with you. I struggle with this with the podcast every single time. Like mm-hmm. I struggle with trying to create a perfect episode that's going to land perfectly with every person who listens to it and Mm. that is literally impossible and Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's exhausting sometimes Mm, exhausting of course it's not we can't say everything there is to say about that topic that's impossible period and i'm not always going to phrase everything perfectly I might say things that down the road I wish I hadn't or I wish I had said differently. Um, but it really, it really 
sometimes, like depending on the topic, can mm-hmm. mess with me so much. Yeah. And it's like making room again and again and again for our fallibility and our imperfection and our incompleteness. And I, to me, there's some spiritual quality to all of this. And this is the most interesting piece for me. And I'm so curious about where it lands with you, Victoria, because you had a religious upbringing and I didn't. So I don't come with religious trauma or baggage of any kind. Um, and so, you know, it's, I, I, I wrote somewhat about this on the last blog. Um, so if anyone's listening to this later, it's the blog from September 4th, 2022, that I feel so deeply in my bones that there's one aspect of anxiety, intrusive thoughts, OCD, this need for certainty, perfection, purity, that there's one aspect of it that's amplified because we've lost rituals that help us cleanse and atone. And I'm going to use the word sin, which I think is a very charged word. But in Judaism, the word for sin is chet, which means missing the mark. So it doesn't carry, it's not this idea of original sin, but it's this much softer understanding that we all miss the mark sometimes. Sometimes every day, right? Because we're human. We mess up. And that the rituals help us to cleanse, to purify. So there's the purity, but in a different, from a different lens. And that they also help us express our longing for spiritual perfection, which I think is wholeness. It's not something that lifts us above. It's something that brings us into our full embodied humanity. And so let's take like the OCD symptom that you mentioned on contamination, right? So not only germs, but also emotional contamination, how I'm not perfect in my speech, or what if I lied in the past? So the the moral scrupulosity piece as well. What if my dark thoughts mean I'm a bad person? And this part that doesn't allow for the imperfections of being human may also be trying to express in this morphed and misguided way a deep longing for wholeness which again can be seen as a kind of perfection. And so, you know, religion was born because we have these existential human needs. Like June was talking about in the episode on the fear of death, he's talking about religion to try to soothe in some way our fear of death, but also our struggles of being human. And so we need these healthy ways to, and I'm putting this in quotation marks, atone for our sins or acknowledge how we've messed up, right? We need meaningful ways to express our longing for perfection, spiritual perfection. And so 
the timing of this episode is very appropriate from a Jewish calendar. We're in the Jewish month of Elul, which is the month preceding the high holidays of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. And we are invited to take this entire month, every day, to do a spiritual accounting with kindness, with gentleness, to look back at the year that we're leaving and ask, where have I missed the mark? How have I missed the mark? And to look to the new year, the Jewish new year, with the question, how can I return home so that I'm living in closer alignment with my intentions and my values? I love this month in the Jewish calendar. I don't do it perfectly, and I try to give myself grace for not, you know, there's things you're supposed to do, blow the shofar every day, listen to or read Psalm 27 every day. I don't do those things every day, um, but I love when I do them. And then it all eventually culminates on Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement and in Jewish renewal, which is the spiritual, mystical, embodied, inclusive, earth-based Judaism that res- that resonates with me, calls it the day of at-one-ment. Instead of atonement, it's at-one-ment. So putting the hyphens in different places. Where we have this collective ritual, the whole community of cleansing and returning. And we dress in white, we fast and we abstain from sex, not because any of that's dirty or wrong, just to embody mm, cleansing. It's sort of called a, a taste of death, which is intense, but it's like this putting us into another sacred time and space. And it's considered the holiest day of the whole year. And so the way I understand this is that there's this sacredness in atoning. And I think for, I I know for my husband, for Dave, growing up in Catholicism, he would not respond to this language at all because it was all about confession. And if you have one bad thought, like you think about sex or whatever, you know, you have to confess and atone. And so to me, that's a morphed, mutated version. And it exists in all religion. It's in Judaism also, but I wasn't raised in it. So it doesn't carry that for me. But that from a sacred perspective, not from the baggage and guilt and sin and all that, that there's a sacredness in owning and naming how we mess up and how we mess up communally as a community so that we can forgive ourselves, forgive others, realign in the year to come. So I find this very beautiful. I'm really curious how it lands for you, Victoria. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's the compassion piece that needs to be in place. True, warm compassion that needs to be in place. That darling, darling, I'm here for you. Mm. Darling, I know you suffer. Like that has to be in place for the rest of it to feel 
helpful, I think, and to, and not just cause us to shut down. So mm-hmm. I think without the compassion, I notice in myself a tendency to just try to avoid looking at what I need to atone for. It's this weird, like, obs- like a weird mixture of obsession and fixation and avoidance. I don't know how I manage it. Mm-hmm. It makes <laughs> sense to me. <laughs> like, it's like internal obsession and avoiding, but then in an interaction with another person, I'd probably try to deflect. Or mm-hmm. if it's real, like, obsessing over the hamburgers, but maybe avoiding really thinking about maybe a pattern of beha- of relational behavior that mm. that I would like to think about mm. and change. So mm. you know, I think in Catholicism like in Ignatian spirituality there's the practice of the examine um which I think maybe we've talked about on here before. I can't remember, but it's a daily practice of reflecting on the events of the day and reflecting on what you're, what happened and what you're grateful for. And also what maybe you feel badly about, or you wish you had done differently. Um, Mm -hmm. And I actually think the examine is a really beautiful practice Mm. and I've done it from time to time, but I do find that I tend to get hooked by like, I don't know, associations, I guess, with (laughs) um, guilt and fear and shame that also float around religion for me. Mm -hmm. Um, But I feel like I've tried to bring that spirit more to my life of like trying to be really honest with myself about, okay, if, if I don't look at what I want to atone for, to use that word, I'm just going to keep doing it and repeating it. Mm-hmm. Um, and the only way to look at it is to like try so hard <laughs> to develop more of a compassionate outlook. It's really hard. I think, yeah. 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 To me, the power of Yom Kippur is that it's in community. And there's this one part of the service, and I don't know if it's just a Jewish renewal thing or if it's in more traditional Jewish services on this day, but it's where everybody ahead of time writes in what how they messed up and you know, kind of what they would like to do differently in the year. And sometimes, and so they're like four pages. Of, and I'm I'm imagining as pages right now. I think in non-COVID times, people just yell it out. But the last couple of years, it's been over Zoom, and so you see everyone's thing that they've written in, without anyone's name. And sometimes it's like, I'm on my screens too much, right? Or, um, you know, I was. I was checking my phone when my son was trying to tell me something important. It's things like that. Like, it's not the end of the world and we all do it. And so it becomes this community experience of, oh, you do that thing too because we're all human and we're able to kind of put it into the big 
vessel, you know, like a big vat of water or fire and name it, release it, ask for forgiveness. And yes, the compassion piece, the compassion, the gentleness, the mercy, the kindness, it's critical. We can't do it without that first and last and in between and all around us. To know that we are intrinsically good and we mess up, but the messing up is not evidence of some kind of deep down badness or wrongness. can feel how hard this is for me because to to reference another episode dropping into your body like I'm noticing how my head feels right now it's mm. like I can feel this like pressure in my head like <laughs> mm-hmm. this phrase came into my mind as we've been talking like right after I said how hard it is for me to get these episodes out sometimes because of my perfectionism. I was like, it's like I'm trying to play God. Like I'm Mm. trying to control the whole thing, like make sure it's okay for everyone and everyone gets the right idea from it and everyone's okay. And Mm. yeah, it's like I'm trying to play God instead of just feeling into what it means to be human, which means that I, I don't have control over all those things. And yeah. yeah, it's so hard. It's so hard for me. I can feel it physically in my body right now mm. as we're talking about it. I'm so glad you're naming that and what it feels like in your head and that pressure. And also what is extraordinary to me about you is that you are able to step out of it enough to witness it and name it and then talk about it here. And you're 31, right? I'm 50. So it's just remarkable. Sometimes I forget that because you're so wise and amazing. (laughs) (laughs) But – I think it's something also that as you grow through time, just by getting older, I don't know that it automatically drops away, but if you're also doing your inner work and in therapy and, you know, shining a light on these places, I think we start to allow ourselves more grace, maybe because it's actually I mean, I find it less and less possible. Not that perfection was ever possible, Mm 
But let's go back to the beginning of the conversation about our physical bodies. There is no way, unless I spent six hours at the gym every day, that my body is going to be physically perfect, whatever that means, like whatever the idea I used to have in my head or the culture gives us. Or I spent a whole bunch of money and had some kind of surgery, which I don't really want to do. There's just, it's an impossibility. And so I can either fight it or I can say, well, the combination of gravity and time is (laughs) working its magic on my aging body and skin and hair. And I could be really depressed about that. And sometimes it bugs me and bothers me. But mostly I think it, there's like this tenderness. When I see my friends that I've had since I was 12 and 16, like really young, really long friendships, and I see the wrinkles on their eyes like I have, the crow's feet, and I see the gray, and our bodies are just softer. It makes me feel so tender. Like (laughs) we're going through this life together and we all tried so hard as teenagers to achieve some kind of perfection in many ways, as students, as bodies, whatever. And there's just no way. And there's like this, again, this great relief and this great sisterhood of being unavoidably human together. The timing of that is so perfect because like two hours ago, I was in the bathroom, I looked in the mirror and I was like, is that a gray hair? <laughs> and I like flipped out. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I could talk about the body stuff all day, but I will, I will say, I think, yeah, perfectionism can touch on every and does touch on every area, but I think it's my relationships, you know, never feeling like I'm being a good enough granddaughter, daughter, sister, girlfriend, friend, colleague, like never feeling like I mm. I am doing enough to make sure everybody knows how much I love them, to make sure that everyone feels loved, to try to make everybody feel happy, you know, to try mm. to mm. – um, it's the relational stuff where I just – Oh, get so down on myself. And I'm just kind of curious. I mean, it, we're kind of, we're at the end here, but I'm just curious if you hear that from other people and how you work with that, if you do hear that from others. Absolutely. I think it's so core to the highly, highly sensitive person, child, um, temperament that the relational is the most important. It's the value that you hold the highest. 
And that's so beautiful. There's such deep bonds of loyalty and love, fierce love. And the flip side of that, which I wrote about in the blog post, is the terror of being rejected, shunned, judged, humiliated, excommunicated, essentially. And I think because this personality type of which you are, and so many people who find their way to my work are, hold that you are the connectors. And in some other tribal time, you would have held that role and you would have been given and taught and mentored in rituals for maintaining the connections, the invisible connections in the community with the ancestors in this world and beyond. But we are left without guides, without mentors, without healthy rituals. And so there's this sort of frantic fear of it's all up to me. It's my responsibility. And if I mess up, if I'm not enough in some way, if I'm not perfect and pure enough, I will be, end up alone. I will be found out and I will end up alone. Yeah. That resonates. (laughs) Hmm. But the medicine, right, the antidote, And I think we learn this as we move along in life, like we were saying earlier, in our safest, healthiest relationships, there is so much room to be imperfect and to mess up and to be forgiven and to say, I'm sorry, and I'll do better and to work on it. And so again, I think over time we learn It goes back to that deep shame place of I am not enough. And so I have to work really hard to make sure that everybody knows how much I love them, that they are loved. Because underneath all that is I'm not enough. Am Am I loved as I am? Am I enough? Am I lovable as I am? And I think most people, have a deep place inside, some deeper than others. Mine's deep. I don't always access that place, but it's in there. The place of, am I lovable even when I mess up? Hmm. Mm. Yeah, I'm not like podcasting anymore. I'm just crying. (laughs) Mm. Yeah. There's no rush. 
got me today (laughs) I think this has been actually like very present so yeah I think it's our most painful place inside of shame and the purist and the perfectionist work really hard to try to protect and prove our goodness and our lovability. That's their function. It's so misguided. It doesn't work, but they're trying. They're trying to somehow prove goodness and lovability. It reminds me of a blog post I wrote years ago that I then included as an mp3 in several of my courses you are loved if you knew you were fully loved if you knew that you were whole and worthy exactly as you are just for being intrinsically you, your anxiety would disappear. If you could plug into a source of spiritual truth that allowed you to have direct access to the circuitry of love that continually and eternally darts around you, the one truly inexhaustible and sustainable energy source your intrusive thoughts would disintegrate in the full waters of your inner well. If with one full cycle breath of inhale and exhale, with one open-hearted plea to connect to the glory of the love that shimmers in each cell of every living creature on this planet, if you could allow the life force to enter through the soles of your feet as you walked barefoot in the dew-laden grass, each blade a haven of delight for the invisibles that dance on the edges, the joy shimmering up your calves and thighs and filling you with the beauty that awaits your invitation. Your depression would sink like a puddle of ink into the belly of the earth and churn there in those wild fires to alchemize into another source. If every time fear gripped you in its chokehold, circling around your chest and throat in its paralyzing vice, you opened your lips and prayed for help. Even if no sound was released, even if your round mouth scream was as silent as the painting but contained the desperate prayer of one who was tired of living in fear's grip. The prayer would open the channels that carry love into your sacred places, 
and it would overpower the fear. Love is stronger than fear. Love is all there is. We long for the connection, the soul to soul, eyes and heart wide open, naked and vulnerable connection that says, I see you. Do you see me? This can happen with a friend, a tree, a rock, a sister, a cousin, a lover, a child, an animal. And yet, because we've been hurt, because we're human and we remember the separation that occurred when the umbilical cord was cut, because we come from oneness and long to return there and yet remember the exquisite pain of our separateness and the unavoidable knowledge that everyone and everything we love on this painful, glorious planet will die. We construct walls around our hearts to avoid the pain. I don't know how to land the plane. <laughs> I'm sorry. We need Everest. Everest. <laughs> mm. It's like I felt like I needed to cry yesterday and it just what wouldn't happen. And mm. talking about all of it and hearing your reflections just kind of brought it all out. Mm. Mm. It's good. It's good. Maybe some layer of that weight got released, got cleansed. Our mm -hmm. tears, our tears are a purification ritual. And when I cried in the bathtub, in the water, and the water catching my tears, and the visual of my grandmother saying, weep into the oceans, into the rivers, into the seas. It felt bigger than me. It was vaster than me. There was something bigger than me holding and allowing that voice to wash through. And so for anybody listening who is stirred up, who feels the shame voice and the protectors of perfection and purity, I invite you to create a simple ritual and get a bowl of water and gather some stones. And when you notice that voice, so either the voice that enters and is stringent and cold, or you recognize some place where you messed up. And you can name it and own it, that you put it into the stone and place it into the water. And do that as many times a day as you need to, perhaps at the end of the day or in the morning 
try it for a week. And at the end of the week, take the bowl of water that is metabolizing and alchemizing your shame and your tears and those voices of perfection and purity and let stir it around, stir the stones around, let them, let it be purified. And empty the water into some green thing, a plant or the grass or if it's not green, the time of year where you are living onto the earth. So that it's, there's movement, there's transformation. And I think there's a transformation that can only happen through ritual. Maybe not only, but it's a powerful way. All right, I have to give it a try. (laughs) Mm, Give it a try. I'll check in with you in a week. Okay. (laughs) Mm, Thank you, Victoria. Thank you, Cheryl. Mm.